1: Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jim Daduchu. And what we do on this podcast is we take a piece of pop culture and reveal the real history behind it. And this time round, we're going to be talking about Rasputin, as in Ra Ra Rasputin, Russia's greatest love machine. There was a cat that really was gone. Yes, so we're also going to be talking about Boney M. Very strange phenomenon there. Either you know them or you don't. Simple as that. Far less well known in America. If you don't know anything about them, boy, you're going to have a strange story about this very hot pop group from the 1970s that aren't quite what you think they are which is obviously going to take us to Rasputin somehow. Don't worry, I'll get there. And also, it's a reminder that there's the King's Man movie that came out basically at Christmas 2021.
2: Rasputin, your reputation precedes you.
1: Which was meant to come out, I believe, in 2020, but then COVID and all this kind of stuff, which is a prequel to the Kingsman movies that came out in the late teens, 20 teens. And all of this pulls together this wonderful myth and story of Rasputin and how for more than a century he's caught the popular imagination in all the wrong ways. And that's very rare for anybody, particularly somebody who they themselves never killed anybody. They were never a political leader, but for more than a century, Rasputin is considered down there with the likes of Hitler and, you know, other sort of like twisted people from histories. really, really interesting to look at. And indeed, he he sort of seeps into this kind of idea of occult and black magic, which, for the record, Condensed Histories is going to stick its neck out here. There's no such thing as magic.
0: There's no such thing as magic.
1: Yes, tricks, magic tricks, fine. Ilya Boots, the editor, Greg. Oh, my God, it's a dream he does magic tricks all the time but if you ask him is there such a thing as actual black magic using the forces of the supernatural to create various mystical powers he's going to say no there's no evidence of that so all of this is linked to bizarrely a huge band in the 1970s 70s were weird, and I'm about to prove it to you. And obviously, this is also, well, I say obviously, this is also going to link back to a guy called Frank Farian, a German guy who's a genius and the kind of the man pulling the strings behind the scenes. I'm having so much fun with this one, not going to lie. Now, first of all, I'm going to explain to you my background with Boney M. Boney M. was a disco pop act of the mid to late 70s and into the early 80s, Will go into that in more detail a little bit and they were huge in mainland Europe and they were pretty big in the UK as well I believe they only have had one top 30 hit in America but You know, they're they're sort of in in the conversation about disco, which many people see as a completely morally or artistically bankrupt form of pop music, which generally pop music doesn't get the world's best reputation anyway. But certainly in the late 70s, disco, this kind of hard hitting pop music, very repetitious, very strong bass line, became something that you just danced to. Disco stew
2: likes disco music.
1: It evolved arguably into the house music of the eighties and nineties, but it was definitely meant to be danced to, and was it as beautifully orchestrated as something like the the Beatles music? Absolutely not, but you get something like ABBA starting in the sort of disco realm, certainly with the sort of disco look. the 70s if you were basically doing music you wore it big in almost every sense of the phrase this is where you will be wearing gold lame flares you'll be wearing makeup even if you're a guy like kiss or david bowie and it it just it was bigger and brasher and if you like that's what the punk movement of the late 70s was kind of pushing against saying enough of people wearing wingsuits and silk and velvet and glitter and all this kind of stuff let's strip it back and Let's let's get back to the, the dangerous element of rock and roll. I personally am not a huge fan of punk rock music, but I know how influential it is. Pretty much any band with a guitar nowadays will be talking about the New York Dolls or the Sex Pistols from the late 70s. But at the same time, there was this band of black performers coming out of Germany, strangely, called Boney M., the reason for their name is slightly contested but very quickly they they became a a bit of a phenomenon and yet at the same time they were a bit of a novelty act as well they had the huge hit rivers of babylon and the it was a double a site with rivers of babylon and brown girl in the ring now for those of you who are perhaps too young to understand what's a double A-side single, allow me to explain. So in the olden days, when people bought physical music, particularly in the 70s, 80s and 90s, when it came to vinyl singles, obviously you'd buy a whole album and you'd have half the album on one side of the disc and the other half of the album, you have to flip over and play the other side of the vinyl disc. Then with CDs, everything's on the same side. With me? great if it's a single it is a much smaller disc however you still got the second side of the disc so quite often people put in maybe one of the more experimental tunes or maybe that tune they just felt obliged to put on to the album so quite often the b side was different interesting but certainly not a a, a real sort of like eye catcher or earworm whatever you want to call it however occasionally big bands just were so artistically epic if you like they were just sort of pushing out the songs all the time every now and then they'd put a double a side in other words we're not telling you which one's the best song both of these are barnstormers and in the case of boney m you've got the rivers of babylon and you've got brown girl in the ring now brown girl in the ring is actually a kind of jamaican nursery rhyme And so they were very much playing on the kind of Caribbean, African culture. And yet they were singing in English. And the weird thing is they weren't really singing at all. <laughs> I'll I'll come back to that in a moment. But they had this mixture of 1978, the number one Christmas single. Christmas single still in the 21st century. Our big deal, who's number one at Christmas? Well, in Britain in 1978, it was Boney M with Oh My Lord, or Jesus Was Born. Anyway, there's several different names, but you probably heard this one. And again, it's a kind of funky number. The great thing about Boney M's tracks is... Their verses were very short. Their choruses were very catchy and easily repeatable. Even if you didn't know the English language, you could repeat them quite easily. And then, and then there was, you know, you could always dance to it. They never did the slow love song. And so this was Bonium and they were a huge. Hit. Now, back in the late 70s, my father had a sister and his sister had moved to Germany a small little town nearish frankfurt and so what we would do from time to time not necessarily at christmas but from time to time we would drive from london to this tiny little town called klingenberg in west germany of course this is the time before the unification of germany And we would take the ferry, there was no such thing as the Eurostar then. We would drive to Dover, we would take a ferry, and then we'd drive through Belgium and then on it into Germany. The whole trip would take the best part of a day. In fact, with the ferry trips, my memory as a child is quite often we, we slept through it. I'm not quite sure if we had cabins or things like that, but my recollection is it took quite a long time, but obviously that's a child's recollection, however my parents did not have the biggest music collection my sister always remembers with dread this one the two that we remember there had to have been more but the two albums that we played well basically we'd finish one of the albums then we'd play the next album and then we'd go back to the first album again and those two albums were johnny cash live in san quentin prison and boney m i presume greatest hits it might have been one of their albums i'm I'm not quite sure it had kind of like a spaceship on the front cover. These are cassettes rather than vinyl. Obviously, we're in a car. And yeah, so basically Johnny Cash and Boney M was the soundtrack to me traveling around Europe a lot. And yeah, they've been stuck in my head ever since. And and Burnham, if you like, one of the great things about them is they're completely inoffensive. They were never political, they were never radical, they were never raunchy, they were family-friendly, and they were catchy tunes, and it was just a, a beautiful package of pop culture. However, bizarrely, amongst all these other songs, they decided to do one called Ra Ra Rasputin. <laughs> And I've already said some of the lines there, but maybe Greg's going to put in a bit of it at some point anyway. But when his drinking and lusting and his hunger for power became known, which was just insane. You know, disco, I guess you could sing about anything, but nobody had felt the need to sing about that strange spiritual individual of czarist Russia from the very first part of the 20th century. Not a natural fit for a disco track, and yet it was huge, and yet it's still referred to. Interestingly, as I've mentioned, this movie that's come out in 2021, The Kingsman, As I said, prequel to these. The the whole point of the Kingsman series was it's like saying, hey, we're going to take James Bond. We're going to make it more modern, not in the sense of modernizing Bond, but showing you like British heritage with the suits and things like this. But Eggsy is the guy who they're going to train up. And he's very much your kind of working class boy from the 21st century you know wearing shell suits baseball caps things like that and therefore it kind of you know he would never be allowed to be a double o in james bond it was wonderfully edgy and i really enjoyed them i think some of their comedy particularly the sort of the sexual jokes really off and particularly in the second movie it's like come on guys can you not do better than this but overall great action great comedy they you know had some great cameos from the likes of Sir Elton John and Sir Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah, let's have them in there as well.
0: Get out of the way,
1: Elton. Stay down. It's not allowed to hurt me. Thank you. Uh, had some great action in it too so, so yeah just just great movies and then apparently somebody had written this spy story around world war 1 couldn't quite get it made so they sort of rejigged it to say well, why don't we make it the prequel from the kingsman to the king's apostrophe yes king's man and so we see the setting up of this secret service branch but it's all set in the backdrop of world war 1 and of course you've got rasputin in the background and weirdly, one of the teaser trailers on YouTube decides to cut together Rhys Evans, this Welshman who's playing very well, I hasten to add, Rasputin, or at least very well in the cartoonish sense of Rasputin, not in terms of the real man, but how you expect Rasputin to be, he does that. But they edit his bits together on YouTube to the Boney M track, which is is 40 years old or, or older. And it's like, who's going to get that? I mean, is is that a sign that Boney M has sort of like eased its way into the pop culture that much? Really interesting to me. It's like, wow, they, they went there. Okay, fair enough. I'm on board. That's a very niche if you're trying to appeal to Jem. But bravo to the makers of Kingsman. So anyway, let's go back to Frank Farian, because what all this is about is Frank Farian was a German music producer and writer, and sometimes performer. And he'd had a number of hits, but very much it was European rather than sort of full scale international, or indeed hitting the English language market. And so he came up with the idea of Boney M and He basically got a female singer to sing the the female parts and his really deep voice. Well, it was actually accentuated thanks to his production abilities in a sound booth, but he did the voice of the guy. Now, if you watch any of the videos of them performing live, in the 1970s, it was not unusual for people to mime, because you just wanted the best possible sound quality. Nobody batted an eyelid. Nobody thought that you were faking it, but the whole of Boney M were. This is controversial, because the lineup of Boney M since the 1970s has changed multiple times. When it was discovered that they were basically miming, most The actors, performers started to do it themselves, but they were never really a formal group. They were never really a bunch of musicians who had formed a band on their own. They were all brought in together, you know, much like the fabricated boy bands and girl bands of the, the 1990s and early 2000s. But the trick was they weren't actually singing. And Frank Farian, in the meantime, was creating hit after hit for them, but was very much, in essence, the silent partner. Nobody was talking about Frank. Everybody was talking about Boney M. And indeed, when it came out, it was kind of the end of Boney M.'s sell-by date. Anyway, that already had two, three, four good years of, of publicity and popularity, and they kind of reached this sort of like natural sell-by date, like not many of these sort of prefabricated bands do. And so it all kind of just sort of went quietly away. Saying that, though. Bonium still perform live, but each one of the original cast have got their own group and they're all claiming to be Bonium. It's a litigious nightmare, which I'm not going to get into the middle of. But interestingly, Frank did it again. you may remember in the late 80s this bombshell that this huge band these two young black men who did dancing and singing with long dreadlocks but they were wearing kind of leggings and dms but they also had these baggy suit tops on the band was called millie vanilli and it was frank again frank was doing the voices (laughs) only this time round. It really imploded. When people found out that Milli Vanilli were actually just miming to Frank's work, it destroyed the band. Just... Just that—that's it. And I remember the press conference where one of the guys was uh, was trying to prove that he could sing. Girl, you know it's true. Ooh, 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 I love you. That I was- think you should go with this tape. We give you each a tape. You can take it to a scientist. But you—why c- you 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 not demonstrate now? Okay, I demonstrate. Let's do it. Let's do it. This myself No, you guys. One two, one two. Girl, you know it's true. Ooh. Oh, oh, I love you it's one of their biggest hits they had a number of hits i mean frank knew how to write and produce and sing a good pop tune but when by then, if you like it lacked any kind of credibility if you were performing you were meant to also be able to be singing and so the fact that the whole thing was a fake annihilated this very hot band in the late 1980s uh, and just yeah evaporated so frank is he an evil genius? Is he like a modern day Rasputin? I don't know. He seems a lovely guy. He's still alive. I, I believe he's still sort of like working. He's, he hasn't had like the same mega hits with the likes of Boney M and Milli Vanilli. Great names, by the way, Frank. I, I salute you on those. But... We've got this weird fascination with Rasputin. He's been in pop tunes. He's the bad guy in an action movie. He was the bad guy in the first Hellboy movie. And he he sort of appears a lot in pop culture. And he's always basically some kind of dark magician. He is a malevolent force. And yet the real man wasn't really like that. In fact, here's the first fact I'm gonna throw you out there. He wasn't even a priest.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: So Rasputin, born in Siberia, very much the middle of nowhere in every possible sense, far away from the power of central authority of Russia. In the, this is all happening in the mid to late 1800s, 19th century, you get the idea. And he's an example of a Stranik, which is kind of like a, a Russian Orthodox pilgrim wanderer. He was never... An actual ordained minister of the Orthodox faith, but this kind of wandering holy man—if you want to put it into Western terms—a bit like a friar. But but that's not accurate because, as again, he he wasn't officially part of the church. So I, if you're going to sort of like flip it even further to America, you get these lay preachers—these people who believe wholly in the Bible. They do their own preaching, but they're not affiliated to any specific like the Methodists or Baptists or Catholics or wherever whichever denomination of christianity so these stranics were kind of these wandering mystic aesthetic type individuals so he was married he had kids but that's fine it, well he wasn't any breaking any vows of chastity that was going on And so he got this sort of like reputation of being this sort of like almost wild man who was very, very holy, for want of a better phrase. You know, one of these classic kind of saintly figures that you you read about throughout the Middle Ages who might put themselves through a certain amount of physical pain or abstinence and he was doing all of this in siberia not the world's most hospitable region to start off with but then in the early 1900s he moves to moscow now at the time moscow and saint petersburg were basically the dual capitals of the russian empire and he becomes He's sort of a reminder to the aristocracy of the kind of the the earthy honesty of the the peasant classes so he builds up a bit of a following quite often with women. To because this is a patriarchal society the women are kind of ignored the men are off being generals and things like that so you know he would listen to them and he would entertain them and he would talk to them about an aesthetic life and and other things that were very pleasing to anybody who's going on that kind of spiritual pilgrimage there is a lot of analogy of this in the modern world there are lots of these kind of spiritual healing type people that you know they might be into reiki or they might be into sort of crystal healing and things like none of these people are a member of a specific religion but because they seem to be almost monk like they get these followings they can make a lot of money out of it and i'm not going to go into the validity of any of these things but if you're saying that you know rasputin was evil because he he gathered together all these women it's a thing it 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 still happens today and these other people aren't put in the same territory as rasputin but he also had this reputation of having healing hands again This is not unique to Rasputin. This idea of spiritual healing goes back all the way into the Bible, for heaven's sake. So if you like, Rasputin is a sign of how the early 20th century was on this knife edge between science and mysticism. Another example, absolute contemporary to Rasputin, is we get the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who famously was assassinated in Sarajevo in the summer of 1914, and it triggers World War I. Why do I mention him? Because he knew Sarajevo was dangerous. And so while he was driving around in Sarajevo, he had a special jacket underneath his main jacket, which was covered in things like small icons and small bits of holy relics. So basically, he was counting on, in essence, spiritual protection rather than wearing a bulletproof vest, which might have been a better choice for him. But This was a very educated man who was about to inherit an entire empire, and yet he thought that these little unctions and, like I say, relics and all these sorts of things were a legitimate form of protection. So to start mocking, and this is the Austro-Hungarian Empire. These were well-educated people. There were lots of great scientists and scientific breakthroughs happening in Austro-Hungary at this time. Don't forget, this is where Freud, you know, was born and raised. And you get the idea. Scientists, philosophers, psychologists, you know, these people were mixing at a time when people were still also buying these special holy waters and things like that to protect them from evil spirits. I find that really interesting. So Rasputin, if you like, is an embodiment of the old and the new mixing together. But if you know much about this, then the key thing is the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas II and Tsarina, they have multiple children, but they've only got one son and he's a haemophiliac. What's that mean? That means that basically his blood platelets will not knot together. And therefore, if he's cut him, cuts himself, he can bleed himself to death. The rest of us will have blood clotting. He's incapable of doing that. And at one point, that's exactly what happens. And in the sort of like desperation, the doctors couldn't help him. But Rasputin comes in and he seems to do something to help the boy. Now chances are all of this could be sort of like cast in one way as like oh you know is this a sign of spiritual powers of of the things that science can't explain well if the point is the higher blood pressure the more you bleed so if Rasputin was a calming effect calm the boy down made him rest and just sort of like didn't move very much so there's less chance of damage that can all explain how he survived rather than the doctors constantly pulling him and pushing him and trying to force liniments onto his body or something like that they were trying to help but maybe maybe what he should have done is just been left to calm down and that's what resputing correctly worked out but at that point he is now in with the royal family Then we get World War I breaking out. And what's interesting is it's sort of remembered that, well, first of all, Tsar Nicholas's wife, well, Tsar Nicholas was a grandson of Queen Victoria. And so, yeah, he he wasn't exactly 100% Russian, but his wife was German. And there was these rumors that she was going to basically be the power within the fifth column and sort of ruin Russia's chances against Germany this is all rubbish but Rasputin is sort of mixed in with all of this like oh you know Rasputin's going to destroy it all and cause all these sorts of problems no there is actually evidence of him writing about how in the event of a war with Germany it would be catastrophic for Russia and to avoid it at all costs which is exactly the right call by the way so Rasputin did the right thing in that situation. But the, the, if you like, the problem with Russia in the World War One had nothing to do with the Tsarina or Rasputin. It had to do with the fact that the army was not fit for purpose. Basically, the the generals, most of them were, in essence, sort of like suck-ups to the Tsar. They were not particularly inspired. They didn't understand modern warfare. The equipment was woeful. You know, there were, there were points at which, you know, men would have one rifle between between five men. You don't have to be Rasputin to be ruining the army in that situation. You've already ruined the army. There's not enough guns to go around. Perhaps don't fight a war. So, you know, basically, we've got the Romanov dynasty, which had recently celebrated 300 years. The dynasty had been ruling Russia for 300 years. And yet it was sitting on top of an utterly rotten structure waiting to collapse. But Rasputin and the Tsarina were going to basically become the poster boys of this kind of thing. The other critical thing is that when the war started going badly, the Tsar decided to fire the generals, maybe not the world's worst plan, but then decide to run the army himself this was a critical failure because up until then the czar if you like the empire could blame the generals but now the leader of the empire is the general at that point any setbacks can be blamed directly on the leadership of the empire and not other people who were just not up to up to the job so that was that was the worst move that Tsar nicholas could have made but he made it and that's what sealed the fate really of russia and nothing to do with rasputin but there's just no doubt we are at the age now where we have photographs and there is something creepy about the guy even today looking at these photos those weird piercing eyes and then we get the story of his downfall his assassination now i'm going to read from my book forgotten history which is a collection of lots of random interesting facts from history i'll just quickly flick here uh here we go king richard the lionheart couldn't stop spending the other exceedingly bloody scottish play so you get the idea these things have got nothing in common they're just all just weird and wonderful facts the war where nobody died if you want to find out more about any of those then forgotten history by jim de you can get it anywhere you want it's published by ambly publishing you can get it there you can get it on amazon you can go to an actual bookshop support your local bookshops it's carved up into different eras so in the 20th century funnily enough i've got the many deaths of rasputin so i'll read it out here maybe give you a little bit of extra context on it as well but Grigori Rasputin is one of those rare historical figures who lives on more as a myth than as a man. There's no denying his power as an advisor to Tsar Nicholas II's court, where he was associated with spiritual healing and, you know, to the outside world. All the stuff about the occult, by the way, is basically all the jealous people looking in on the court. It was never actually said. I mean, indeed, one of the rumors was Rasputin was sleeping with the Tsarina. That's, that's rubbish, there's, there's no evidence. Of that. But you get this throughout history. Anybody who's popular at court, everybody else starts bad-mouthing them, and invariably they've either slept with the wrong person or slept with a member of their own family, just to really denigrate them. A dispassionate view of him reveals a man who's like many other influential hangers-on in imperial courts over the centuries. However, it was his almost supernatural stamina that makes him a fascinating subject, and the story of Rasputin's death is full of contradictory evidence mixed with hearsay and exaggeration. So let's try and stick to known facts. There are many stories about people who were nearly assassinated. The point being that the assassin missed and the target lived. This was not the case in June of 1914. Rasputin was on his way home when a woman jumped him in the street and stabbed him in the stomach. He managed to fend her off from making any other wounds to him by beating her away with a stick. Stomach wounds are notoriously fatal. Rasputin bled profusely and underwent weeks of surgery, medical treatment and recuperation. It's not often you hold your own guts and live to tell the tale, but Rasputin did. There was a second assassination attempt 18 months later. The facts are that in December of 1916, it is also worth pointing out that it depends whether you're using the Russian calendar or the basically the everybody else's Gregorian calendar. So I'm sticking to Gregorian on this one, but yeah, you now get the point. The, one of the confusing things during the Russian revolution is certain things like the October revolution looks like it happened in November, but it depends on whose who's calendar you're actually using. So anyway, yes. December 1916, Rasputin was invited to the Yusupov Palace in St. Petersburg. They were a hugely wealthy and influential family. Because he often met secretly with courtiers, Rasputin had no reason to be suspicious. However, unbeknown to him, an entire cabal of assassins was waiting for him in a soundproof room. Rasputin arrived at what looked like the end of a dinner party, and he was offered poisoned cakes and drinks laced with cyanide. One version says he declined the offers. another that he ate and drank and appeared to suffer no ill effects now all we can say is there was no poison in his body at the end of the autopsy by the way so you make your own choice on that so either way felix yusupov grew bored with the proceedings walked behind rasputin and shot him twice in the back The later autopsy revealed that both wounds had caused colossal internal damage and bleeding, something which should have been fatal. Rasputin fell to the ground and most of the conspirators left. When Yusupov went back to the body, Rasputin lunged at him and a vicious brawl ensued. Caked in his own blood, Rasputin escaped up the stairs. He was shot twice more, stabbed a few times, and clubbed to the ground just for good measure. A policeman heard the shots and came by to investigate. Yusupov was honest about what had just happened and asked the policeman to keep quiet about it after murdering one of the most famous men in Russia. Unsurprisingly, the policeman ignored this request and went looking for assistance. The race was now on to get rid of Rasputin's body, which was pretty damning evidence. He was rolled up in a curtain and thrown from a bridge into an ice hole in the Malaya Nevka River. (laughs) However, in their haste, Yusupov and his accomplices forgot to attach weights to Rasputin's corpse, and his body was found three days later. The autopsy revealed that one of the final shots had hit him in the head, and even Rasputin's bear-like stamina couldn't survive that. It was now part of legend that it took drowning in the river to ultimately finish him off. Despite all that had gone before, but Rasputin was dead before his body had been removed from the palace. But the story doesn't end there. The final chapter of Rasputin's life, well, death, had yet to be written. As a testament to his close connections to the Romanovs, Rasputin was laid to rest in a prestigious burial site in the grounds of the Alexander Palace. However, early 1917 saw the start of a revolution in Russia and palaces as symbols of a despised regime were prime targets for destruction. Because Rasputin himself was seen as an embodiment of the old imperial system, it was never likely that he'd be allowed to rest in peace for long. When the revolutionaries arrived at the Alexander Palace, they found Rasputin's grave and dug him up. He hadn't been in the ground that long, and as Russian winters are notoriously bitter, decomposition was minimal, so the angry mob had a chance to gaze into the face of their enemy one more time. It was decided to take him to the nearby forest and burn him. A funeral pyre was built, the body was placed on top, and the bonfire was set alight. All of this, by the way, is has is, is been recorded. It's, it's all true. The next bit is contested for several different reasons. Bear with me. But as the flames rose higher and higher, Rasputin appeared to be getting up. He was alive, and the communist revolutionaries had angered him. The terrified mob turned into a hysterical crowd that fled the scene. Well, wouldn't you? The reason for Rasputin's apparent resurrection was not black magic, but something all Undertakers know. If a person is to be cremated, certain tendons have to be cut. This is because, as the body heats up, these tendons contract and can cause the body to move. The last thing anyone wants to hear is a body bumping around inside its coffin, apparently being burnt alive. Oblivious to this information, the crowd assumed it was more of Rasputin's black magic, but the reality was a little more mundane. So the reason why I'm saying it's disputed is because while he was burnt, there are are a couple of eyewitness accounts about him moving around. People don't know whether that's just sort of making it up at all. I've heard one person who says, yes, that stuff about the tendons is absolutely true. And I've had somebody else say it absolutely isn't true, that they actually don't need to cut tendons. I don't know I'm not a mortician I'm not a a, a biologist or you know a surgeon or anything like that so I cannot you know all I can tell you is I've done the research and that's well I mean obviously he didn't move because of black magic and he's a zombie but if he did move chances are it's because it was parts of his body's being shriveled up faster than other parts and, and you know yes sometimes things move around so anyway yes that's a great story about the multiple deaths of Rasputin but if you like It almost doesn't matter what the facts are. This is so interlaced with myth. And when it comes to the story of Rasputin, there is hardly anything in the English language where somebody has tried to do the real story of Rasputin. He is far more likely to appear as a sinister force of evil in, as I said, something like Hellboy or something like Kingsman. And I find it fascinating that, you know, he is considered... That terrible that he can be used in pop culture as a sort of almost like a legitimate historical version of the devil. He's, if you like, Hitler, only Hitler never had any kind of magical powers. That's Rasputin. But he's as evil. His intent is the same as Hitler's. And I I just, it really makes my mind boggle how somebody who's that obscure, if you don't believe me, please name another member of the Romanov court at the time of the Russian Revolution. Off you go. And if you do, you only know it because you probably did a dissertation on it and you have to concede, yeah, there's just nobody else like him. And and so, yes, yeah, so you get somebody like Rasputin who was famous in his time, but has become more famous since And almost all of it is by people who have got nothing but bad things or weird made up things to say about him. And there's nobody else really like that in history. He's kind of a bizarre outlier. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are fans and critics of somebody like Napoleon, but nobody thinks Napoleon was magical, for heaven's sakes. Perhaps the one thing you might know about Napoleon, which is wrong and is from propaganda of the time, is that he was very short. That was British propaganda from the early 1800s you have know, the little corporal and no he was of average height he wasn't teeny tiny so yeah if you if you know that but yeah it, it, you know julius caesar incredibly famous nothing magical about him henry the bad guy definitely nothing magic about him And also these other people were in positions of incredible power, whereas really all that Rasputin was, was a kind of mystical holy man who wanted to heal people and gave actually pretty good political advice when you look at what he actually said. And yet... No, he's sort of Voldemort of World War I. There we go. I'm going to finish there. But yeah, so Kingsman, it's its a, uh, for the record, really fun film. It's got some really gritty moments of showing you the horrors of the trenches of World War I. It, it, it's going to be slightly critical. There are times when it's a bit cartoony and there's times when it's almost like a very serious war movie. Not sure those two bits gel together perfectly, but it is thoroughly entertaining. It is nice that we've got something that's sort of British-orientated rather than American-orientated and doesn't have costumed superheroes in it. Although it does have a little bit of magic with Rasputin. Anyway, gonna leave it there. Thank you so much for listening. Another podcast coming soon.